You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey, y'all, it's Bridget here. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Sean Sewell. Sean continues to view the service industry as a medium to deliver his unique style of exceptional customer service. Bar, restaurant, concept creation, menu formulation, staff training, launch guidance, to branding, marketing, and to public relations strategies, Sean's experience in advancement of the industry has been prolific. He has co-authored the books Cocktail Culture, Great Northern Cocktails, BC Spirits Cocktail Book, and the second edition of Great Northern Cocktails, and provides ongoing contributions to publications such as Liquor.com and Eat Magazine. His mission is to make the industry better for everyone through his post-shift podcast. Sean shares his idea of work-life balance and so much more. So grab yourself a Toki Highball and enjoy the show. Sean, welcome to Served Up. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Well, thank you so much. It's been so long. It's been a really long time. Um, can you tell our listeners a bit about your journey into the beverage world, you know, where you came from all the way to where you are today? Oh, wow. Um, so I was trained as a landscaper during high school with my family, and I was actually a landscaper uh, throughout high school. And when I left high school, I got a job as a junior handyman at 18 years old at a hotel in Brisbane, just doing gardening and changing light bulbs and the usual stuff. And uh, one night, the food and beverage manager, who was very, very frazzled, came down to me and was like, have you got black and whites? I'm like, yeah, I've got black and whites. He's like, can you work tonight? And so I rushed home on the train, changed into my black and whites and worked the bar. No training, no nothing, just jumped on the bar and poured like rum and Cokes and beer at a wedding for the function space we had. And I was hooked. And so from that moment on, I stayed on as a handyman for a little bit longer, but I got hooked real quick. And that was 1998. So it was 1998. And since then, I haven't had really any other jobs except for the beverage industry. You started off in Australia, correct? Correct. Yes. So yes. how did you wind up in Canada where you are today? Originally a girl, but that's usually the story for most Australians when they come to Canada is usually you, you follow someone. Um, and it was, it's not my wife, but it was a, a girl that I met in Australia and we hit it off and I came, I moved, packed up my life and, and moved at 26 and moved to Canada. Um, and I wouldn't change it for the world. I love it here. We broke up like two and a half, three months later. And, but I fell in love with Victoria and stayed and I haven't lived anywhere else in Canada. So I haven't done the usual Whistler Bamp thing that most Australians do because I left Australia to get, a, not necessarily get away from Australians, but to experience things myself. So I wasn't going to go and hang out with a whole bunch of Australians and New Zealanders and, uh, would defeat the purpose of doing the whole massive trip. Right. Well, when did you really discover the craft of the cocktail? Because in 1998, you know, it was really kind of the 
just starting that next golden age before that, I like to call it like the crap of the cocktail. That's, <laughs> that's what I learned, you know, all the purple hooters, the long Island iced teas that are not as delicious as, as maybe Morgenthaler makes now. And so, um, you know, let's talk a little bit about that. When re- what was your like aha moment? Like this is a true craft, not just a clock in clock out gig. Um, growing up with my dad, my dad's ex-military. So he always had a rule is that he never cared about what you did as long as you were the best at it. And so for me, I've never seen any job as a clock in clock out. Like I've always put a whole bunch of time into it. Um, I remember the first time I got someone ordered a martini, just a gin martini at the bar. And I was like, just fresh behind the bar. And I'm like, Nope. And I gave it to the senior bartender. I literally left the bar and went and cleaned up glassware. So I was like freaked out. And I was like, Oh, I can't freak out at work like that. Like what is a gin martini? And obviously back then you didn't have, websites at all. Like the internet was not a thing. And so I started making it a rule that every time I passed a bookshop, I would pop in and see what cocktail books they had that I didn't have and buy them. And so I I still in storage at home in Australia, I have 500 books that I bought from 1998 to 2006. And so that's where, that's where it sort of started stemming from. And then uh, Suntory at the time had really good cocktail competitions. And so like the Suntory Cup was an actual thing. They sponsored a lot of Australian bartender guild stuff. So around 2000, 2001, I really started competing a lot. And again, like you said, like it's the gold, it was the restart of the golden era. Brisbane was getting good with cocktails. But again, I look back and I'm like, uh, yeah, we weren't that great. Like we were doing stuff like we weren't that great. You know, like if you had all the Suntory flavors and all the Bacardi flavors, you were like a real cocktail bar. Like you were like, you're a real cocktail bar. Um, so yeah, I, I started working in nightclubs, uh, usually in the cocktail, like bar upstairs of the nightclub. So you pack places packed and you're banging out mudslides and stuff like that. Um, so once I started really researching and getting behind it and reading about history and all that sort of stuff, it, it just sort of progressed from there. And like I said, my dad always said, regardless of what you do, I always want you to be the best at it. So that's basically how I live my, live my life still. So that's the one thing that sort of pushed me in it. I just like the intricacies. I like everything about creating a cocktail, serving guests, uh, mentoring now as I'm getting a little bit older and stuff like that. Like it's just always been a bug. And I've never had a moment where I'm like, you know what? I'm done with this industry. Like it's always, it's, it's doesn't define me, but it definitely is a massive part of my life. Yeah. I would say like you either like really love it or you kind of hate it. <laughs> There's not like this in between with our industry, like other mm-hmm. industries, you know, where you do maybe just clock in or clock out or sit at a desk all day. Right. Because it can be so physical. It can be hard on mentally it's draining, you know? So it's, it's definitely an industry that you have to love with your whole heart. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people say it's a job, not a lifestyle, but it is a lifestyle. Like when you clock off, you're still thinking about a drink or you're reading imbibe or you're having an agroni. Like it, I, I see it as a big, lifestyle, not necessarily just a job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you've had the really unique um, viewpoint, I guess, being in Canada. I know you've traveled uh, many times to the US. I'm sure you've gone back home as well. What are some standouts that you've seen over the years or maybe some similarities in the cocktail cultures from where you are now to you know where I am in the United States? I think the great thing with Canada is that we're lucky enough. We're so close to the state. So you can go to Seattle really easy, especially from Victoria. You can go to Seattle really easy. You get to go to Portland. You have access 
to a lot of great spots. If you're in Toronto, you've got Chicago, you've got New York, we're only a few hours away. Um, so I think there's a, a lot of influence there. And then Canada being part of the, the Commonwealth, we get a lot of influence from the UK and Australia because a lot of those bartenders will come and live and work in, in Canada. So you get that infusion of this very European style uh, mentality towards hospitality and, and cocktails and stuff like that. So it's a bit of a melting pot, which I think America has that, but it's a little bit different. So for us, we get to be influenced by the US to the South. We get to be influenced by Europe and, and Australia. And again, with the, the World Wide Web and social media now, there's just so much you can access. Like I look now and I'm sure you feel the same way. Like my right-hand guy for my bar is 23 years old. He's been bartending for two and a half years. And the stuff he knows at 23 is just insane. Like he always sending me links about stuff. Like I look back when I was 23, I was still working the nightclubs and like pouring shots and doing all that sort of stuff. And I'm like looking at, and he's got, he's just gone into the regionals world-class. And so he flew out this morning to go to the regionals world-class and it's his first big cocktail competition and his drinks are always on point. He's fast. He's, he's fluid. So I think the, the information superhighway, as they call it, is where you can just access everything now. And I think everything's sort of caught up to almost the same level across the board. Whereas like, in the late nineties and the early two thousands, you still had to like make sure you were, you, you make sure you had your Australian bartender magazine subscription and make sure that you did pop into every bookstore and grab a book and like cross-reference. I've still got a notebook from 2004 that I worked up in the Wit Sundays and I took about 15, 20 books with me. And I literally sat on the beach and went through every book A to B and was like, okay, what cocktail let's do the French 75 and go through every single book to find the notes history notes and the recipes for the French 75 and then correlate and create my, sort of evolve the whole story, the history, the methodologies and stuff, because you didn't have the internet. <laughs> you couldn't just go, Oh, liquor.com French 75 or Diffid's guide French 75, which I still, I do now so much. Like people go, Oh, I want this cocktail. Okay. Diffid's this cocktail, the recipe If Diffid's, if Diffid says this for the recipe, chances are it is hundred percent correct. I feel like, um, the kids these days are quite spoiled, you know, because I think that we had to learn by trial and error and there weren't um, always mentors around quite yet. I know the term mixologist wasn't even quite out there yet. At least when I started bartending, there definitely weren't brand ambassadors and all these great gigs that are now available, you know, to us. And, you know, one of the things you just mentioned were co is cocktail competitions. Now that's something that has been around for quite some time. How have you seen them really change? And also, have you seen them really help to propel careers? Oh, for sure. Like, I, I still think we can always be evolving in game better. Um, your, your world-class Bacardi legacies and stuff like that have really honed in on what it means to be a bartender, not just a mixologist. Like, I, I don't hate the term mixologist. I think the, there's sommeliers, there's Cicerons, like there's but I think that if you're a bar, if you classify yourself as a bartender, you should be able to make a good cocktail. You should be able to talk about wine. You should be able to recommend a beer. Like you should have a rounded thing and you should also know what's going on current events and sports and all that sort of stuff. So I feel like cocktail competitions are way more um, in depth and rounded these days in comparison to like making a fancy drink with a fancy garnish and being a popular bartender and the judges just going, yep, you win. And it actually like delves into how do you make this? What's your prep list like? What's your costings like? And especially for the younger generation, it's something that them being forced to do that, like those sort of knowledge-based things and the service-based things and the business-based things 
that I think is where the next generation is really lucky. And as you said, spoiled because a lot of 23, 24 year old kids, when we were going up, they wouldn't know how to cost a menu. They wouldn't know how to like write prep lists and like do everything by weight, not by volume. Like, uh, what is it? One liter of sugar versus one liter of water. I think Dale did a whole thing when he updated his book, like the one liter of water. There's no such thing as one liter of sugar. It's a, it's either in grams or kilograms or ounces or whatever. Um, so I think cocktail competition is propelling people um, on a personal and a professional level, I think is really something that I'm seeing much, much more of, which I love. But the professional level, yeah, you, if you win world-class like Caitlin Stewart and, and James Grant, Canada has been killing the world-class the last couple of years. Um, it does. It, it can set the tone for the next five to 10 years of your career. Um, but on a personal level, the, the skills they teach for the younger generation and anyone competing, they bring those back to the bar. And so the service gets better. The knowledge gets better. The thirst for the hungriness, like the hungriness and the hunger for it all gets a lot better too. What are your views around hospitality in general? Like the word hospitality, Sean, because I do feel like for a few years, we did get a little bit away from what hospitality truly is. And really we're more concerned about um, ourselves, mm-hmm. right? you know, and the the craft of the cocktail, but, you know, without the customer, we don't have a bar. And so, you know, my question to you is, you know, what are your thoughts around hospitality, where it was at when you first began and kind of that evolution to where we are today? Yeah, I think it, I think it started out like hospitality in those nineties with de- and in Australia is a little bit different because you don't work for tips. So like, you don't know what a tip is. Like I remember working at a busy cocktail bar and like you may walk away with $50 in tips at the end of the week, like Matt, but you'd get penalty rates. You would get $16 an hour. And in two, like 1998, 2001, $16 an hour is a good little wicket for a 21 year old kid. Um, I think so. Hospitality was always good there because we weren't so precious and into ourselves. And I, and don't get me wrong. I, I'm going to say this and people are going to go, well, you were precious and you were into yourself and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, but we all go through that stage in our career where, you're working really hard and you're doing CSS and you're researching and you're tasting. And so sometimes it feels like if it's not appreciated back by the customer, cause it's a two way street that of course you're going to get you back up a little bit. And, but now as I get older and I've got kids, I'm like seeing myself what I was like 10 years ago. I'm like, no, you can't do that, dude. That, that's stupid. Like, why would you even do that? I like hospitality to be like, if you went over to your grandmother's house, like what would your grandmother do? On the flip side of that for the customer, like you wouldn't go into your grandma's house and be loud and rambunctious or uh, move furniture around or be rude. It, again, it's that symbiotic relationship, which I think post-COVID, post-pandemic, I think that symbiotic relationship of the customer and the establishment is coming back to a degree. Now, I know you hear horror stories about Karen's blowing up and all that sort of stuff, but I do think, I, I feel like anyway, um, for my sort of service, it's, it's a two-way street and it's symbiotic now because people are going out less, but they're going to the places they really want to go to and they want the experience you offer. And so it's this sort of give and take that I feel is very reminiscent of like the first, when I started in the industry of like, you go to a fancy restaurant, you wouldn't just like ask for whatever you wanted off the menu. Like you, you, you'd want the server and the person to, to work with you to find that thing you want or recommend a wine. And so I think people are chasing value but the value is coming from value add for like the experience, ambience, all that sort of stuff, I think is way more important now than it was pre-pandemic. 
at? Do you think we're kind of getting back to the human and, you know, human, human experience, let's say, um, you know, that craving of really going to a bar, having a conversation with a bartender or even with your server versus ordering out, staying at home or even making cocktails at home, like we were all during, doing, you know, during the pandemic, I know I was. <laughs> and um, for me, myself personally, it doesn't matter if I go to a pizza place or fine dining five-star restaurant, I, I have the same attitude. I am so appreciative. I'm so grateful to have the experience. Oh, 100%. I think the last two years has shown people that they really need to be social not just social at work, not just social outside of work, but like just they want to be around people, which is what we all do. We're, we're all social animals when it comes to people in the industry. We're people pleasers when you're an industry person. So if you don't have people to please, it sort of does leave you a hole in your soul a little bit. Like you want that, you want that dopamine hit at the end of the night because you know you just served 150 people and everybody left as happy as you can possibly make them. And so that, two, that, that sort of like interaction, I think people are really hungry for. But I think that people are hungry for a very specific style of interaction. Like you were saying, you were looking for that experience at that place. I think that's what people are craving. They're just not, they're, they're seeing their time and their energy being better placed than I think before. Like before it was like, oh, I'll just go have some beers with the boys after work. But now you're like, well, do I want to go to the beers with the boys or do I want to go and see XYZ bartender or hang out with my partner or do that? So I think the, allocation of time in a lot of people's lives now is way more poignant than it was pre-pandemic. Yeah, I agree with you a thousand percent. Now, something that you did before the pandemic was um, you did write a book. Do you want to talk a bit about your book? You know, tell us all about it and what that process was like for you. Nightmare. <laughs> um, <laughs> I understand I, <laughs> that a thousand percent, brother. Yes, I do. Let's I, get uh, into it. I wrote a book during the pandemic as well. So I put out two books in the last like two and a half years. Um, the one just before the pandemic, I launched actually just late 2019, um, when I was in Singapore, cause I was still in Singapore when it finally got published. And, uh, it's about 150 bartenders from across Canada. It's called great Northern cocktails. And as you can imagine, like when you're just dealing with your own personal details and recipes and stuff, you can sort of chug along, but the amount of Facebook messages, Instagram messages, emails that I had to send to, to speed these bartenders up was tough. It was very tough. And so then the editing process, getting photos shot, all this sort of stuff. Um, but it was my love letter to Canada. And I think Canada doesn't get as much love as it probably should when it comes to those awards and all the sort of exposure that the US gets and Europe gets and Southeast Asia. And so I wanted to showcase amazing bartenders and not just the ones that are in Toronto, not just the ones in Vancouver, but the ones in Edmonton, the ones that are in Winnipeg and Ottawa and like Halifax, you know, in Victoria, obviously, like I had a great bunch of kids in the, for the Victoria section. So yeah, my, I love being here in Canada. Like I know I'm a interloper, I suppose, but it's been 16 years. I'm a Canadian citizen. Um, but I just love the scene here and I love the people that are in it. And I wanted to showcase that as much as possible. No, I think that that's an amazing thing to pay tribute to the country that you live in. You know, absolutely. Are there some standouts that makes that really make um, the bartenders, the bartender community in Canada a little bit different from the rest of the world? So like when we think about this, you know, like Japan really stands out to me, mm -hmm. right? Because they have so much finesse and elegance um, here in the Midwest, outside of Chicago, Illinois, 
we can talk all day long. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're just talkers, we're huggers, you know, there's like a, a warmth, right? When you come to the Midwest in America, what makes Canada stand out? I, I won't group myself into this one, but we're all super nice. Like that's the thing is Canadians are notoriously nice. And I think, especially here on the West coast, it's laid back. It's laid back without being pretentious. Well, pretentious without being, nah, I'm trying to avoid this. We're laid back, we're chill. you know, the bar manager will be an epic bartender who does world-class and stuff. And then he'll go surfing in the morning before they go into shift, you know, or they'll take a walk around Stanley park or go for a hike. Um, and I think that balance of, um, thirst and it's a little bit of Australianism as well, I suppose, because of the thing in Australia, we have this mentality of like, we're competitive by nature. It's in our DNA. We're very competitive, but we're also mates. So you want to be better than that bartender and you want to be better than that venue, but then you'll have drinks at that venue and hang out and give recipes over the thing or like source skews for certain products and all this sort of stuff. So I think Canada's got that going for them a little bit that we're competitive, but we're still all nice. And when we see each other at events and stuff, it's all hugs and and chatting. And the amount of Facebook groups that I'm part of that in Vancouver and Victoria that people are like, oh, I, anyone know what the skew is for this cider? And within 10 minutes, like there's five people who are just like, eh, there's the there's a skew so you can order it. Or where can I get this? Oh, it's this rep. You know, so I think that's the the big thing is we're competitive, but we're also mates. Are there any flavors or even any spirit brands that are really, I hate to use the word trending, but you're seeing a lot um, currently on menus or see bartenders gravitating towards um, in your neck of the woods? I think craft spirits are big. Uh, In BC alone, we have almost 80 distilleries, you know, so like all all that back bar that you, you see in the shot here, that's all craft BC stuff. I have 140 BC gins. And so the craft Wait, movement. Stop right there. Yeah. How many? 140. 140 yeah. BC gins. That's impressive. Like it literally really the three shelves to the far left, that's all gin and it's all three to four bottles deep. I wish the folks on the podcast could see this because it's just audio. <laughs> we don't do visual, yeah. but Sean's bar behind him went when we first turned the cameras on. I was like, where are you? <laughs> he has a he shed. Yeah, that's what he works out of. So very cool. So tell me about that. Tell me about the the craft spirit movement. It really like the oldest distillery in in BC is 20 years old and they've been in the Okanagan in the interior for a number of like a number of years. They have two distilleries out there. Um, The craft movement really blew up, I would say, about five to eight years ago. The government changed the rules about using agricultural products as a base. So you can use NGS, which a couple of distilleries do, but you're not classed as craft, you're classed as commercial. Um, and they're still small distilleries and they still do a good job. It's just all the other distilleries, like 72 of the distilleries um, have to ferment, distill everything from scratch. So we have distilleries that are making spirits from honey. We have distilleries that are making spirits from obviously grain, um, obviously tons and tons of fruit, like the Okanagan, the fruit fields. Uh, I know from Okanagan Spirits, every year when the season's over, if they couldn't sell any of the fruit, whether it be ugly fruit for grocery stores and stuff like that, they just get truckloads of fruit and they ferment and distill a whole bunch of fruit or de vie. And that's what's their base for all their liqueurs and their absinthe and everything else. And so every distillery has about, I would say, anywhere from two to 30 SKUs. So 30 different products like the Okanagan Spirits, they have 30 products like liqueurs and whiskeys and vodkas and gins and everything. And so that's really been a lot of people's focus the last couple of years, especially in the in the bar trade here on the West Coast and in the interior in Vancouver, 
And there's bars opening dedicated to BC spirits, which is just amazing. Like you just probably see, still see like the, the more macro brands in the well as well, spirits and stuff like that. But a lot of people just use cocktails for uh, ingredients from BC in their cocktails and stuff. And so it's super fun to watch that grow. Um, and I've tasted close to 500 BC spirits over the last like three years. And so I've obviously tasted a hell of a lot of stuff. And then we've got like all over my right-hand shoulder, they're all bitters from BC products. So there's like six or seven bitters purveyors just in BC. We've got dedicated vermouth makers, like all they make is vermouth. So we have dedicated vermouth makers in BC. <laughs> so, which is just insane. It's incredible. You know, I've, I have had the honor and the pleasure of kind of watching, you know, what, what comes out of your neck of the woods and to see it blow up like that. I mean, really like Bravo, it just amazing because, you know, bartenders and those who are truly into our craft love nothing more than a spirit or a bitter that's mm-hmm. made really well. And when we can really share that local story, you know, like where it came from, oh. typically with, with the spirits, you, when they're craft, like you're saying, you, you can meet the owners, you know, you know exactly what that region looks like and what to expect mm-hmm. um, if they've distilled something from there. So I think that that's really beautiful and really quite wonderful and impressive. It, it is really impressive. Some of the um, places, the ones that are dedicated whiskey distilleries and stuff like that, they're really intense. Like the the space they have and they have stuff that's been laying down for 10 years. And we all know how expensive it is to fill a barrel of whiskey to start with and then leave it for 10 years. But it's also that terroir-driven uh, element. And World Gin Awards and a few other things like World Gin Awards, I think we've had, yeah, it was the Seaside Gin from Sheringham here on the island, one best gin in the world a couple of years ago. And it propelled propelled them once they got that. They were getting orders from Japan and all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, it's the, the craziness of it all is like the, the Seaside Gin in particular from Sheringham, they use they have this Japanese lady who goes off the coast and she's a, a free diver. Like, so she dives for kelp. And so they use a special kelp that's grown just off the coast of Souk in their gin. And this lady's like 85 years old and she'll free dive, cut kelp and then deliver it to the distillery. And you're just like, ah, uh, that is awesome. Yeah. I can't even swim. So I think that's <laughs> extra awesome. That's amazing. Are you seeing any um, single malts coming out of Canada? And I only ask because there is quite a few that are getting some buzz here in America, particularly in Texas. There's this mm. whole movement of of single malt, which I think is terribly cool. I think it's really neat that, you know, we're kind of not taking away from Scotland in any way, but taking that art form and seeing what we can do in our own backyard. But is Canada doing anything around that category? Yeah, it, it was a slow uptick. Obviously, gin and vodka was commonplace everywhere for a long time. Um, like the two bottles just there, that's two single malts from a local distillery that's just down the corner, just down the road from me. Um, I've just updated the list at my place. And I think I have somewhere in the region of, I want to say about 25, 30 whiskeys from BC, mostly single malts. Uh, but you've seen a lot of um, distilleries play with rye. And then doing a, a high rye blend and then aging in a Hungarian oak or uh, blackberry port casks and all this sort of crazy stuff. So there, there's some cool stuff coming out. And I, I like the fact that, especially here in Canada, you can use the rules of Canadian whiskey for good or evil. And if you use it for good, it gives you a lot of freedom to like play around with some really cool flavor profiles. 
Yeah, that's really cool. When um, I just want to stay on the topic of single malt just for a little bit longer, because as you know, a single malt scotch, it really, you know, the air, the air quality that's mm-hmm. around you, the temperature that's around you, you know, the whole terroir, everything really affects that flavor. Can you tell, I mean, is there any standouts with Canadian single malt if it's made in one region versus another that, you know, you're going to have some particular um, flavor profiles? Um, I think distilleries have terroir. I don't think regions quite do yet because there's not enough grouped together. So we have Shelter Point here on the island, uh, Okanagan Spirits in the Okanagan. Um, I've tasted their whiskeys and I feel like every distillery has a very specific flavor profile. You know, you, you, if you taste all the Glenlivets, you know that there's just one flavor that sits right through the middle of Glenlivet or Macallan or anything like that. So I find that it's distillery, distillery specific. Um, where you get the sea air off Shelter Point, which is up near towards Campbell River. Okanagan, very, very hot in summer, very, very cold in winter. Um, so they have a very particular flavor profile. So I now can like taste different distilleries and, and I can do it blind and, and go, okay, well, I know that's Okanagan Spirits. I know that uh, XYZ Distillery has a very hoppy note because they're attached to a brewery. All their whiskeys taste like that hoppy, wet doggy sort of like ping. I don't, they don't put hops in their whiskey. It's just the fact that the grain and everything is so close to the brewery that it has that twang. And so distillery specific stuff is kind of fun. Yeah. I think it's super fun. I mean, to me, that category, it's just so, it's just so interesting to me. It has a lot of personality, mm-hmm. you know, it definitely has some personality. You mentioned something about mentorship and it is one of my most favorite topics. So I do want to dive into that with you because I think that it means as much to you as it does to me. Mm-hmm. And so with that, um, I know that you've mentored all of Canada <laughs> and beyond. So can you talk a bit about that journey? Maybe a bit, you know, who was your mentor? When did you discover that? Wow. You know, this is something that's truly important to me personally, to my journey and um, to my career. I think I'm the same as you in the beginning. Um, we didn't, there wasn't mentors cause we were all just trying to figure out as we went, like we were all coming up on the same level. As I got a little bit older, I would say like the late twenties, early thirties of my career was a little bit more, I wouldn't say self-absorbed, but like definitely just looking after myself and, and learning and becoming who I wanted to be as a bartender per se is when I took over Clive's and, and stuff like that. And so I think it's been probably in the last couple of years working abroad. Um, and that's the thing that I've started really like understanding that I have no ego about myself, I suppose, to a degree when it comes to bartending anymore. I don't, I haven't bartended in months. Um, I run the floor and I do my logistics stuff and I've got two great kids who one of them basically had never worked in a cocktail bar before. And, and you've been to my bar, like it's an intense cocktail joint. And he'd never worked in a cocktail bar before, but he showed up on a Monday. I had ghosted, been ghosted by like three or four different applicants and were shot on Monday. So I'm like just doing prep and stuff. And he's like, and I'm in a t-shirt and apron. He's like, oh, are you the person I would talk to about dropping off a resume? I'm like, do I look like the person I drop off a resume to? And he's like, yes. I'm like, let's have a seat. And we had a chat. And about an hour later, his manager at his current job messaged me on Facebook. And was like, can you please hire Cade? I will fire him right now for you. And so. He came over and he is very talented. Obviously, he's not as knowledgeable as Harry is, my 23-year-old kid, but he's 25 as well. But he is a grinder. He will grind out Friday night service and every cocktail is perfect, but he just like grinds, grinds, grinds. And I absolutely adore him. And I think that's the thing is like, 
with consulting as well, like people always go, well, I want you behind the bar. I want you managing because the attachment of name or whatever. I'm like, well, I can train five people that are going to be 85% or 75% like me. So why would I not do that? That makes more sense. And I think now that I've gone through a fair few venues and I've worked with a lot of people and conceptualized and developed and stuff like that, it's become a lot more important because I don't see my legacy as just me. My legacy is the 90% of bartenders because I've actually almost calculated 90% of all bartenders that work in cocktail joints in Victoria have either opened a place with me, worked with me, trained by me. Like, so I, that's a, that's a pretty sweet legacy to like stand upon that your dad basically. And I get called dad a lot now by a lot of different people. My wife thinks it's super weird when I'm walking down the street and someone yells from a car, dad, how are you? She's like, so weird, dude. Like, and I have kids in Vancouver that are the same thing. Like someone will show up and it's like, Oh, your, your, your son sent me over. And I'm like, which son is he Russian? And they're like, yeah, the Russian one. I'm like, oh, okay, Phil. And so, yeah, I think legacy has been become more important to me in the last six years. I say mid thirties legacy has been more important to me than my own personal thing. Yeah, I agree. Well, you know, when you mentor someone, it's not about you, it's about them, mm-hmm. right? It's about that other person. So I totally get that. Um, what's next for you, Sean? What are, what are some of your aspirations? Oh. You're the first person I've talked to outside of my immediate like work family and family about this. I've been really pondering what I want to do because I've been really busy during the pandemic. I started a couple of companies. I've got multiple projects on the go. I wrote a book and all that sort of stuff. But since I went back to working at Clive's, it's been one of those things for me that I've been very happy and content. It's the first time in my life that I haven't wanted something more or something else. The hotel has been really great with me coming back after the pandemic when I couldn't travel and stuff. And so for me, my focus in the next six to 12 months is really just going to be focusing on and building Clive's back up to where, I, where I'm happy with it. And so that's been a big focus for me. I'm still consulting on the side and that sort of thing, but it's not, and I don't know why this has changed in the last six months for me. It's just not as fulfilling. You know, you, you think that, oh, if I get to that point, I'm going to be fulfilled. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be content. And I think that not traveling during the pandemic spends way more time with my family I've missed out a lot. Like I spent six months in Singapore in 2019, like lived by myself. You're away from the people you love for that long. That spending time with them has been absolutely fantastic. And I'm like, I'm 41 this year. I'm still, I've still got a good couple of years. I got a good 25, 30 years left in me to still work. But I'm like, well, what am I going to miss out on? Like, what am I going to miss out on? My daughter's 11 now. Like, am I going to miss out on my daughter's stuff? So, traveling and doing all these consulting and having these aspirations for taking over the world has sort of softened for me over the last six months. And I think if I had kept traveling and the pandemic never happened, I probably wouldn't have come to this realization. So the, you've known me for a long time. The realization where being happy with just one thing has been probably the biggest struggle for me because I've always had millions of plates spinning around like that sort of thing. And so having that realization and going, you know what, on a Friday night, I'm finished by six and I'm home with my family. And when my team needs me, whether the one of the most staff are away on vacation or someone calls in sick, I pick up a shift. And so I'm my own contingency plan for work. But being home at six o'clock and going to bed at 11 on a Friday is, I used to look back at 10 years ago and be like almost scoffing at people like that. You know, like, what do you mean you're going home on a Friday night, you weirdo? Um, you should be working the bar till 2 a.m. like t- for the rest of your life. So yeah, I, that, I haven't talked to anybody about this outside of my immediate like people. 
so yeah, I think the the next little while I, I enjoy writing. I enjoy doing all that sort of stuff, but the pandemic's put a lot of different perspective for me personally and professionally into, uh, into my head. Yeah. I think it's done that for a lot of us. Thank you for sharing that because there's a lot of good nuggets of wisdom in there, right? Because this industry is so aggressive. It can wear you out. It can just run right over your face and Mm -hmm. it doesn't always care about you. And so to to kind of to recenter and not always be chasing, I think is just a really good thing. And with that, can you share some of your wisdom, like maybe some things that you wish you would have done early on, or even, you know, some tips for those who listen to this podcast that like would like to get started in our industry. You've got time. It's a big thing. Like I worked really hard as soon as I left home and and I'd be doing the 65, 70 hours, 80 hours a week at 21, 22. So I didn't get to travel as much as I would have liked to back then because I came from a very hardworking family. My dad and my mom both worked full-time with the company and and that's what we did. Like I'd be up at 5 a.m. in the morning. I'd go load up a truck full of turf. Then I would change, go to school, come jump, get back in the car, change again, go to the farm, load up another thing of turf, drive into the city, which is an hour and a half, uh, do my homework in the truck, and then unload the turf at like 8 30, 9 o'clock at night, then drive home and then do it again the next day. And then Saturday, Sunday, up at five, finish at 10 every single weekend. And so I didn't know anything better, but looking back now, like I I look back 10 years or 15 years, like I only took like Clive's I took over originally in 2009. So I look at all the stuff that's happened to me from 2009 to now. And I'm like, Oh, I've done a lot of stuff. And, you know, so I, I, one thing when my younger kids, they get a little frustrated with how things, how fast things are happening. I'm like, dude, you're 23. You've got time. You don't need to, you don't need to push like super hard to get to a certain goal because when you're 30, you're going to look back and go, man, I could have taken my time on that one a little bit better. Like it's a big thing. Um, and I think social media doesn't help with that, that instant gratification of social media. Like, as, as you said, like, thank you for like, thanking me for sharing people looking out in would probably think that I'm completely mentally stable and having living my best life and busy all the time. And that's the thing, but that's just social media. You know, it's not the truth. And I think when you see younger people in bigger markets achieving XYZ success, the kids in the smaller markets are like, well, why can't I get that? And that sort of thing. If you're starting out, the worst thing someone can say to you is always no. That's the worst thing someone can say. Just ask what you want. Be happy when you find what you want. But if you want a job at that cocktail bar you go to regularly, Go and drop off a resume, start as a barback, start as a dishwasher, make you take your take your time, make your way up. You know, like as soon as you hit the what you think your goal is going to be at 25, there's going to be bigger goals for your 30 and bigger goals when you're 35. And I think if people just slowed down a little bit in the industry and just realized we wouldn't have as much burnout as we probably do in the younger generation, the early 20s, mid 20s sort of thing, because they see the 400,000 followers on Instagram for another person. I'm like, well, I'm better than that. Or why, why are they getting the attention and I'm not? And so I think that's where the burnout comes because they push themselves so hard. And I, I try and remind everybody when I talk to them in Victoria, like, just take a breath. You've got time. Like, I would never have thought I would have done what I've done before my 40th birthday. And I always had a thing like, I got to open my first restaurant by the time I'm 30. You know, like, just take a breath, slow down, enjoy it. Like we get in this industry because it's fun, but then we seem to internally demonize it by putting so much pressure on ourselves. 
Yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, what can come out with, but I'm just going to say it, I haven't said this on this podcast yet, but you know, what comes with burnout can also, um, can also come with death Mm -hmm. and we've lost, um, unfortunately in our industry, we have lost, um, too many folks to, to burnout, to, to doing too many drugs, to just such unhealthy lifestyles that can absolutely come from just trying to keep up and staying, trying to stay in front of the Mm -hmm. industry. I don't believe that it's possible to, um, to run and to live that, um, at that level, it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. It's, and we've seen it in, in recent years, we've seen it with a lot of our peers, which is super unfortunate. So what you're saying is just very important. I don't so much believe in balance, <laughs> you know, I, I just don't, but I do believe that you can be comfortable. I think you know? self-awareness is mm-hmm. the hard thing. Don't look at other people and, and go, oh, I, I want that. So I got to do this, this, this having self-awareness about your balance, like my work-life balance, your work-life balance, it's going to be two different things, you know, like it's just the way it is. And having the self-awareness of where your goals are and what you are willing to do to get to that goal as well is a big thing. Like if you want to own a restaurant by the time you're 30, you can't go out five nights a week drinking. You know, you've got, you've got to save your money. If you do want to do that, like you can't really take weekends off. You've got to work hard and get to that, to get to that goal. But you have to have that self-awareness that, you know, you can get to that goal as long as the goal is attainable in comparison to how much you want to work for it. That's really good stuff right there. I want to talk a bit about your podcast. I know that you're (laughs) unserved up today, but can you tell our listeners, you know, a bit about your podcast, where they can find it and really, why did you start it? It's called the Post Shift Podcast. I'm at 325 episodes, I think, 325 episodes over three years. I started in January, 2019. And I sort of started as a cathartic thing, I think, sort of like my own personal venting post. So I can do a little rant and talk about it, um, get to inter- like interview amazing people, which I know you've done as well, David Wondrich and Jim Meehan and Dada Groff and everybody. So you get to connect with people that you may have only seen or met once or twice at Tales of the Cocktail. And so I still fanboy out. and. I still fanboy out pretty hard. I'm still that 26-year-old kid who came to Canada who still like when sitting with Jim Meehan or Salvatore Calabresi and I, I still fanboy out even now. Like, And I class a lot of people like Jim and Jeffrey and stuff as good friends. Um, so yeah, it's, it was cathartic to start. And then I really just wanted to give the hospitality industry uh, some direction when it came to business and marketing and stuff like that because I find a lot of hospitality podcasts are usually a little bit more hotel-centric. And like, like, because that's usually the biggest portion of the, our wonderful industry, but beverage industry wise are like how to cost, how to cost out cocktails and how to do labor. And these sort of things were, was a, was a sticking point for me as well, that I wanted to, to share as much knowledge as possible to everybody. Where can our listeners find your podcast and where can our listeners find you? It is absolutely everywhere. It is. I, I've signed up for everything that you can possibly stream it from. Um, you can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook. Um, I always laugh at this because I've Google searched it and Facebook and all that. There's only my spelling of my name anywhere in the world, which is super weird. There's wow. S-H-A-W-N-S-O-O-L-E. Does no one else's name that, that I can find on the online which is kind of cool when you get like people like, Oh, so where do we find you? I was like, it's under Sean Sewell everywhere. And so <laughs> easy enough. 
Yeah. And so you can find me absolutely anywhere. And I'm always up for conversations. I had s- someone yesterday, they're transferring for the Fairmont in Banff, I think, to our Fairmont here. And um, he just randomly reached out to me. He's like, oh, my food and beverage director said to reach out to you and like chat about Victoria's cocktail scene and whether or not I can get a part-time job somewhere. I'm like, dude, just hit me up when you land and we'll go get coffee and I'll give you the lay of the land. And he's like, okay, cool. And that was just random on Instagram, which I, I enjoy getting that sort of stuff. Like you got to be grateful for when you're the factotum of the cocktail scene in a city or a beverage scene in a city. Absolutely. Well, like I said, you have trained every single person in Canada, <laughs> which is, you know, quite, a, that's why you're so tired. <laughs> that's why. Probably. Probably. But listen, on behalf of the Served Up family and myself, Sean, I just want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to spend with me. You know, you're doing some incredible work, left us with a lot to think about. And I just want to wish you just some great health as we come out of this damn pandemic and um, a lot of peace. So cheers to you. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much, Bridget. It was great catching up. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!